Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, this is one more weekend that we have to look at that week. That week that I truly feel that, that all of humanity should take some time and, and just examine that week in history. If there was any other time in history, any other place, any other figure in history, I think everything comes down to this week that we're studying. It is this week that we're looking at that, that shifted time from B.C. to A.D. It is this week that we're looking at that put Christmas on our calendar, that put Easter on our calendar. And the very fact that you're here today, or, or if you're downloading the podcast later online, is simply due to this week. It is this week by which all things will be judged here on earth and in eternity. And we're going back we're looking at this week in history. We're dwelling on this week. We picked it up a few weeks ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, a, a crowded city in the nation of Israel where everyone had come together to celebrate the Passover. Their uh, Independence Day, if you will. And it's not just to, to look back that the Jews celebrate Passover. They also have a habit of looking forward. Part of the Passover celebration is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, a Redeemer. And for the last three years, it looks like he could be the guy. Hey, did you hear that he walked on water? Yeah, the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, he fed 5,000 people out of a single lunchbox. There was a 12-year-old girl that was dead. And he raised her up from the dead. Blind guys are seeing. Leprosy is being healed. And the teaching, the type of teaching that's, that's making sense out of this life that we live, not for the weak-minded, not for those that need a crutch, but for every human being as, as if creation was sitting there listening to the words of the Creator. Things are making sense with his teaching. And when he rides into the city on that day that we refer to as Palm Sunday, they're thinking, is this the Redeemer? Is this the warrior that's going to come and rescue us from Rome? We looked at what happened on that day at the end of that parade and how he just went into the headquarters of the enemy and then he went back out and camped outside the city for the night. We saw the next day how he came in and, well, um, he, he basically rearranged the furniture. And uh, he took the tables, he took the chairs, he flipped them upside down because he has one passion one desire for his church, and it did not look in that temple like what his passion looked like. It did not look like what his desire was for people. And then we saw the religious leaders start to line up in, in groups to question him. The first question, who do you think you are to ride into this town, into our temple, and tell us we need to change our lives? Jesus answers their question with a question of his own and a story that we saw last week. There was an owner that, that gave them a vineyard and everything they needed for success, a watchtower, vines, and a wine press, walls, all kinds of stuff. 
And when he sent to, 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 to find out if there was any fruit and to collect his portion, the fruit of the vineyard, the people that ran that vineyard that he'd entrusted with the vineyard, they killed, they beat up, they mistreated a succession of his servants that he sent along. And finally, he sent his only son as the very last answer, thinking, surely they're going to listen to my son. He's the heir. And they thought, <laughs> if we can get rid of the heir, if we can get rid of the son, then we can have all this to, to ourselves. And he asked the question, what is, what, what, what's the owner of the vineyard supposed to do? What's he supposed to do with these people? And the crowded temple courts were silent. We saw last week that every good Israelite, every good Hebrew knew from Isaiah chapter 5, they were the vineyard. He was talking about them. And he was making a very, very clear declaration. I'm the son, and this is your last shot. At the end of the week, he will go up a hill, and he will die on the cross. At the end of the week, there will be an, an, an empty tomb, and, and, and he if he is who he says he is, if he is everything that he claimed to be, then everything in your life and in my life hinges on this week. So I'm glad you're here this morning. We're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 13. The debates are happening, and they're, they're doing exactly what his story last week showed. You know, they're thinking, oh, if we can get rid of, of Jesus, then we don't have to change our lives. If, we, if I can get rid of this Jesus character, then I can go on doing things my way. So they come up with their second question in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now we know right off the bat, as Mark tells us, that they're, they're simply trying to trap him. And we have one of the most unlikely partnerships forming here, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, I'm sure you've heard of, we've probably heard of the Pharisees before. They're the religious elite. They're the leaders in the temple. They're the ones that hold the religious power and the spiritual power and all that's in Jerusalem. And last week we saw that when you mentioned the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians all in one together, you're talking about the, the whole ruling group there in Jerusalem, the, the Sanhedrin. This is their turf. This is their temple. This is their headquarters. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hardly ever agreed on anything. They were so diametrically opposed. The Herodians aren't mentioned a whole lot in the New Testament. But just by the name, you can probably kind of figure out they are the Herodians. You know, they're the party of Herod. And what you need to understand is that Herod was like a puppet king of the Romans. The Romans, the, basically the, the conquerors had put Herod's family on the throne. And so whatever Rome wanted Herod to do, Herod did. The Herodians are supporters of Rome. They're sympathetic to Rome. They don't want to set up a new independence for Israel. They're not necessarily looking for the glory days of, of King David. They want someone from their family to continue to be the, the figurehead of the government there and to, to lead for the Romans. These are people that have taken their religion, if you will, their spirituality, and they have conformed it to the morals, to the, the way of living of the Roman Empire. And they're quite okay with that. So they're at odds with the Pharisees, except on this day. They found a common hatred greater than their hatred for one another, and that is Jesus. Both sides are thinking, let's get rid of him. And they have a question that only one side can win on, and it will split the crowds in the temple. In fact, Jesus' answer to this question might just create a riot, 
The right of all rights, and Rome might just take care of our problem for us. They might come in and, and kill Jesus if he answers this question the way we think he's going to answer it. Because there's really no good way that he can answer it. And so this is the question that they've stayed up all night trying to think about. This is their trap that they're bringing to him. It says in verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? You want to get a church quiet even today? Bring up government and taxes. Oh, it was even more so back then. You see, this, this per-person tax that they had to pay, and it started about 6 A.D., in the early part of the, the first century. And so it's about 25 years old now at this time that they're, they're there in the temple. This argument's taking place. So this is relatively new to the Hebrew people, but they did not like it. The nation of Israel, they didn't like being taxed like this by this Roman government. It wasn't necessarily a huge amount. It was a denarius, which was basically one day's wage. And there were other taxes as well, but this is far less than what you and I probably pay here, if you're paying your taxes. It would probably be about 1% to 2%. And I don't know about you, but I would gladly pay what I pay in taxes to only pay 1% or 2%. But here was the problem for the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people belonged to God. They were controlled by God. They pay taxes to no man. This is their land. And in the, in the Old Testament, it's not just called the land. It's, it's called the promised land. It's the, God, it's the land that God gave to them. You see, they, they believe we are children of God. We owe no man, no government outside of here any dues. So battles have been fought. Insurrections have occurred. Wars, little small wars over the past 25 years. Rebels who have tried to fight against the Roman government. And everyone knows someone who has been either jailed or beaten because of the refusal to pay Rome the tax. And now in a crowded court on an independent holiday where everyone has come in, the crowds get quiet. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, they think, checkmate. Go ahead, Jesus. Go ahead in this crowd and tell people to pay their taxes. See what this crowd does to you. Oh, all these followers that, that you've brought in from Podunk, Galilee, and, and, and the surrounding areas, all these people that just think that you're the bee's knees, you tell them to pay taxes in church, and you see how many fans you're going to lose. On the other hand, go ahead and tell them not to pay taxes. You'll be hauled away before you can finish that last sentence. Rome will see to that. Rome will kill you. You can't answer this question, Jesus. Do we pay taxes or don't we? And there's a chill and a hush about the crowd. But by the way, before you answer, we know that you don't fear men or, or fear crowds. We know you're a man of integrity. We know you're a person that just teaches the truth. Now, the irony of this is they're just being slick and they're trying to, to suck up to him here. The irony is that these are the ones that are being deceitful right now. They're the ones being treacherous right now. They're the ones that, that have murder in their hearts. So by all means, answer the question. Mark tells us, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Well, doesn't he know we stayed up all night thinking about this question? And instead of refusing to play their game, he says, okay, I'll play. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and, and whose inscription on the... 
Well, Caesar's, they answered. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And it says they were amazed at him. Why are you trying to trap me? No answer. Well, bring me a denarius. Now, does Jesus have to have a coin in his hand to give his answer? No, no. Everyone, everyone knows. Everyone in that culture knows whose inscription is on that coin. Everyone knows whose image is on it. He could have just, just said his line. But I think he was doing this for dramatic effect. I think he wanted to reinforce this point with a, he didn't have a slide projector, so instead of a slide, he said, here, let me just use a, a, a coin here. Let me, use an ob- let me make this an object lesson, like we do for the little kids, you know? Looky, looky, listen, listen. Someone bring me a denarius. And so someone pulls out a denarius, a Roman coin, and he says, whose image is on it? Well, um, Caesar's. Well, why don't you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Dang, that was good. And they walked away amazed. We stayed up for six hours mulling over this question, coming up with that. There's no way you could have answered that. Yet his answer gave both sides what they needed. The Herodians walked away saying, oh yeah, that's right, you better pay to Rome what's Rome's. It's Rome's. And the Pharisees walked away saying, yeah, you better pay to God what is God's. Everything is God's. Don't give Rome anything. Well, he answered both sides. The Pharisees, the religious group at that time, would have gone back to Psalm 24.1 where it says this, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it is the Lord's, the entire world is the Lord's, and all who live in it belong to him. So what's left for Caesar? Nothing. Nada. Nietzscheville. The Rhodians would have gone, that's right, it's the image of Caesar, it's Caesar's coin. You're under Caesar's government, you, you give it to Caesar, what is Caesar's? But you see, the problem with this coin is it bears the image of someone, someone that the Roman government has deified. Roman society, Roman culture has deified. They have made Caesar a god. They consider Caesar to be God. You can't pull that out in the temple. You can't can't pull that out in the most spiritual place in the land of Israel. A graven image of someone claiming to be God. That's treason for Israel. And that's the problem with their taxes. They're admitting to an idol in Rome that something belongs to him. You can't do that as a God-fearing Hebrew person. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the irony is that, that these guys are trying to trap him with the very coins that they carry around in their pockets on an everyday basis. The irony is, is that what, what you do with this idol, who, a man who claims to be God, would well, he have one? Um, yeah, I got one right here. Use it on a daily basis? Well, um, yeah. It's brilliant how he broke this down and where we go with it today. If you haven't pulled them out yet, pull out that half sheet of paper that says Life Notes. And at the top it says, nothing is certain but death and taxes. It's an old saying, but today we're going to focus on both taxes and death. So you should be certain about both in your life. And what I want you to write down here, the first fill in the blank is this. Heaven will be a theocracy, not a democracy. Heaven will be a theocracy, not a democracy. 
Heaven will be a place where God and God alone reigns. The government in heaven is God. Only God. Now, I do know, you know, well, well, over, it tells us in the Bible, well, that God's going to make us rule. Yeah, I understand all that when the new heaven, the new earth comes. But really, we all will be working for God. And we'll all be answering to God. Those that don't want to answer to God now won't be there. Sorry. Well, why is this so important? Because we need to understand this. Now, before any clapping occurs or anything like that, you need to hear everything I have to say, okay? There will be no Democrats in heaven. There will be no Republicans in heaven. There'll be no Green Party in heaven. There'll be no Libertarians in heaven. And some of you are going, well, we're not actually not a democracy. Well, I know that, okay? I know. There's not going to be a republic in heaven. Can I go a step further? Step on some more toes? There won't be Americans in heaven. There won't be Canadians in heaven. There won't be Baptists in heaven. Just don't tell them, okay? There won't be Baptists in heaven. Those things aren't what get you to heaven. And I think we need to understand that. And what Jesus is clearly stating here is that there are legitimate spheres of different authorities in our life. And an allegiance to one does not necessarily mean a disloyalty to another. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying there's a sphere in your life that's controlled by the government. You live in a land that has a government. So do we. He told them that. We do too. For them, it happened to be the Roman Empire. So he says, honor that. Give to that government what is due to that government, but make sure you give to God what is God's. There's a different spheres uh, of authority that will come in your life. So, so some of us have bosses. Uh, you know, I have a board that I answer to here. They're, they're, and that's a different sphere of authority. Those of us who have served in the military were subject to military rules and, and, and military administration that civilians, oh, did I say that? That the civilians don't have to submit to. There's a structure in that. There's authority given to rank. And we all find ourselves with different spheres of authority on our lives. And allegiance to one does not necessarily mean that you're going against another. But Jesus really clearly states this. You've got to remember what is God's authority in your life and then give allegiance to the others. And I think that they would have immediately gone back to Genesis chapter 1 here, this, the incredible creation account all the way back in the book of beginnings. And it says in the beginning, and then it goes on down to verse 26 in chapter 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our image, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's the original mission that was given to mankind. Can someone bring me a denarius? Whose image is that? Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Can someone bring me a people, a person? Whose image is on this? Well, God's. Well, render to God what is God's. I mean, that's basic Bible 101, the first page of the Scriptures. We are created in the image of God. We are created in God's likeness. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. 
whose image is on you? And for the purpose of how we apply that today, we've got to be careful of, of, of what image we are representing as we go about our, our lives in this world. Number two, let me give you this. One of our citizenships will always trump the other. Paul will write over and over again to the churches that he plants. He'll give them a word to encourage them. He'll say, let me remind you now that, that you are a follower of Christ, that your citizenship is in heaven. And in the first century in the Roman Empire, that spoke volumes to people, where being a Roman citizen meant everything. It was regarded as, as so high, so valuable. Not everyone that lived within the, the, the realm of Rome was granted citizenship. Citizenship was something to be, to be cherished. It was important to them. And he goes, can I remind you, the moment you became a follower of Christ, you took on the title, yes, son and daughter, but you also and you became a citizen of heaven. Whose image do you bear? Who do you reflect in, in, in your different spheres of, of authority and influence and allegiance? And we live in a day and age where it's, it seems that our attitudes, our, our feelings, our freedom of speech, our freedom of debate, our freedom of argument, oftentimes overshadows our citizenship in heaven. We've politicized our religion I've heard people say that someone of another party can't be a Christian. It's not in here. As far as I'm concerned, it's not true. I understand uh, platforms. I understand agendas. I understand all that kind of stuff. But I also understand that Jesus says how you treat people, how you treat people matters too. Jesus says, can I remind you that the moment or you, you became a follower of Christ, you became a citizen of heaven. Paul says that. Now, I'm not saying anything, uh, when, I, when I use this, this word in here, trumps the other, I'm not saying anything pro or con about any former president. But given that that word, just that word still is so flammable today. And I mention that word, and it's so, so divisive in our country. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But remember, you are made in the image and likeness of God. And an allegiance to one of your passions will always trump the other. So you better be careful which one you're letting take precedence. What do you do if a government asks you to do something that goes against God? It's easy. You always go with God. Well, God tells us to honor the government that we're under. Yes, he does. He's telling them here to honor the Roman Empire. Pretty corrupt there. But if your government ever tells you to do something that causes disobedience to your allegiance to God, it's not even something you pray. Don't, don't tell me, well, i got to pray about it. No, you don't have to pray about it. You go with God. You go with God. And throughout Scripture, there's times where this has happened. But let me just say, you need to be careful when you say, I'm going with God, that you are taking the entire counsel of Scripture, not picking and choosing what you want to support your political opinion. In Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives, they're told by Pharaoh, I want you to kill every Israelite boy that's born. And they chose to disobey him, and, and God honored them and blessed them for it. You have stories in, like in Daniel. Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, built this big, huge idol and wanted them to bow down to it. And these three God-following Hebrew young men said, we're not going to do that. And so the king had them thrown into a fiery furnace, but they don't burn up. They walk out of it. 
Three chapters later, you have Darius, a new king in town, and, and he says, you can't pray openly. And Daniel says, I don't care. I'm a Hebrew. I pray. I'm going to pray to my God. And so Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den, and he walks out unscathed the next morning. In the book of Acts, Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray and teach the gospel. And they get beaten up by the leaders there. And they say, don't teach that Jesus stuff anymore. And they say, we've got to choose, you know, what's better? You tell me, what's better, to follow God or to follow man? We're not going to stop preaching Christ. And I love what it says there, that they counted it worthy to suffer for Christ. Do you count it worthy to suffer for your stand for Christ. We've got to be very clear about our authorities, our passions, our allegiances in life, and, and what we represent and, and what we stand for in the midst of, of all this. Because number three, how we display, how we display, in fact, you might want to circle that word there for emphasis on your lifeness, how we display our passions is far more important than what our passions are. Our image, what we portray, should never contradict the one whose image we are made in. Our image and our reputation for what we're passionate about. And I'm talking here about way more than just politics. I'm talking about allegiance to our sports team. But we need to be careful about our, 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 our allegiance to our sports teams, to our philosophies, to our leisure activities, our sports that we love so much, and to our Facebook. You know, you guys are crazy about a lot of things, I see. It's okay to be passionate about things. It's okay to feel strongly about things. We live in a land that gives us free speech, and we should cherish that. We have free debate about such things. You go for that. But in the midst of it, always remember whose image and likeness you are made in. Always remember whose image and likeness that person that you feel constrained to tear down is made in. That other person is also an image bearer of Christ. We are citizens of heaven, those of us that have, that have faithed Jesus. He paid the price for that. Our creator in the beginning made us in his image, in his likeness. And because of sin, our ability to reflect that image became marred. It became tarnished. But Jesus paid the price for sin to restore that image in us. And through his righteousness, we are restored. Not through our self-righteousness. Through his righteousness, we are restored. So it's okay to be passionate about your politics, your sports teams, your passions. Just make sure that they don't overshadow him whose image you bear. At the end of this week, he's going to climb up that hill with a cross. He will die for people, not for politics. Oh, they'll give him the questions at church to get him caught up in government. He's going to say, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He says, I'm going to die for people. So your passions, your politics should never get in the way of, of, of people, of reaching people, of your witness to people. Never. And they walked away amazed. Man, Jesus, we thought we had you. And then some more guys come up to trap him. And I know you're thinking, oh, well, I thought you were almost done, Walt. It's, it's almost 10 o'clock and you've, your half hour's up. What are these four blanks for? We'll get them. These guys aren't just trying to trap him as much as they're trying to humiliate him, these next guys that come up. You see, he's told the crowd three times on his way into Jerusalem that, that he's going to die and rise again. And these next people that are coming, they're saying that is total nonsense. That is total foolishness. That's ridiculous. There is no afterlife. This life is all there that is. 
The group that held this view at the time were called the Sadducees. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. They didn't believe in the rest of it. And so when the prophets and, and, and folks came along and talked about a Messiah and a coming kingdom and, and all that, they're saying that's hogwash. That's a fairy tale. People need a crutch. Here's the real truth. It's all in the first five books of the Bible, in the King James Version, the first five books at that. None of this afterlife stuff. And I had a seminary professor, Dr. Billy Simmons, that used to say, well, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. And so they've come up with this little riddle that I bet they've used many, many times on their spiritual opponents who couldn't answer it. Let us show you how ludicrous this thought of heaven is. And they're next in line with their question just to show the crowd how big of an idiot Jesus is. It says in verse 18, Then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And this was actually a law in Israel that was meant to protect the woman. And some of you are like, ooh, you mean if, if, if Walt dies, I'm going to have to marry his, his brother Joe? We talked a little about that. It's hard enough trying to find the right guy without having to interview the brother to see, okay, if, if, if this happens. So if anything happens, oh man, I'm out. And it comes up in Deuteronomy chapter 5, again in the first five books of the Bible. If brothers are living together and one of them dies, then the, the, the next brother has to take the wife because the first son that she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother, it says, and, and that way his name will not be blotted out of the land of Israel. And it was a protection for the, for the, for the woman uh, so that she would still have a place to stay, a place to live. Otherwise, she'd be left with nothing and the family name would end. So the brother-in-law must take her as a wife. And the moment you have a son, the son takes on the first dead husband's name, and the family line then passes through him. Mom will be taken care of. She won't be, she won't be kicked out of her home. She won't be left a, a widow with nothing to her name. Well, these guys knew the law, but they wanted to show how stupid heaven was. So they came up with this, with this whole story here. So, so, so if there's a heaven, when they get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Because right now we got seven dudes lined up at the pearly gate. They're waiting for Angela. And when Angela comes, they're, they're like, well, hey, I'm waiting for Angela. Well, I'm waiting for Angela. Well, I married her first. I, I was married to her longer than, than you were. But we've all been married. Who gets Angela? And my question is, has anybody investigated Angela? Has anybody checked what she's been feeding these guys? Were they poisoned or something? What's she cooking? What's she using? What type of insurance policies did she take out? But that doesn't come up in the temple. Whose wife does she get to be? If heaven's this place where we're going, how's that going to work, they're asking him. And, if, and, and they're just trying to show how ridiculous this is in talking about an afterlife. And I love Jesus' answer. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, I'm telling you, folks, that's hard for these guys to hear. So a religious leader in the temple in your own house You've got this itinerant rabbi challenging your knowledge of Scripture. 
He's calling you clueless about the Bible and the, and the power of God. You really have your own ideas, he says, your own thoughts that seem right to you. It seems good in your heart. It seems good in your head, but, but you don't have any biblical evidence for it, he says. Where's your understanding of Scripture? Not just what feels right to you in your life. You've completely diminished the power of God. Let me tell you why. And he goes on, he says, when the dead rise... They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Let me just clarify here. They will not be angels. They will be like the angels in regard to marriage. Because I've seen people, you know, uh, might not have got an angel in heaven. That's not, that's not what Scripture teaches. Angels and humans are, are separate, separate for eternity. He continues in verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? And when he says the book of Moses, he's talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the, 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 the big five that they claim and, and ignore the rest. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. He's saying... Remember those first five books that you, that you remember the, the account of the burning bush in, in Exodus chapter 3. I am the God of Abraham. You know, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So you're, you're mistaken. He says, go back to, we'll use your books. We'll use your own scriptures to show you how, how you're wrong here. God comes to, to Moses. He speaks to him out of the burning bush and says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them, I am sent you. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. Now these guys, by this time that Moses was seeing this burning bush, these guys had been dead six or seven hundred years. You know, they had left this earth. It never says anything about God having been or was the God of Abraham. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's currently in relationship with these guys. He gave a promise to Israel, to, to Jacob, and he gave a promise to Abraham. He gave his daddy. He gave a promise to, to, to Isaac. I am the God that holds true to my word. He never said that he was. He always is. He just exists. It isn't a time that he never did exist. Your own scripture shows that God is still in relationship with, with these three, he said. Now about marriage, you greatly, greatly underestimate the power of God. There is no marriage in heaven. Now for some of you here today, you might be incredibly bummed. Others, you might think, well, I've been married 48 years. You're good. Um, you know, he's saying you, you greatly misunderstand the power of God. Heaven is not this life just a little bit better. Heaven is not this life without sin, without all the bad stuff. He goes, you think that that's what God did? You're made in the image of the creator, the image of God, the very likeness of God. And at the end of this, you think he's just going to take you to a place that's a little bit better than this? All of us just doing our own thing without all the junk? He goes, you think that's the power of God? He says, heaven is, is going to give you a dimension, a world that is so far beyond what this is. And you say, well, well, why would God take away something so precious to me as my, as my spouse? That's not the point at all. God's going to give you something so much greater that whatever's precious to you now is going to be nonsense. Are you saying Bill's nonsense? No, I'm just saying your feelings, your intimacy, your attraction to one another is going to be so far left behind in the dust that you would be embarrassed if you even wanted that in heaven. That's the point that Jesus is making. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul saying heaven is so far beyond what you could ever think or imagine. He says, let me tell you about heaven. We've got this vague image of, of, of heaven right now, and, and we're like little kids, like little toddlers that think we can't, we can't live without our binky, whatever your binky is, the thing that you've got to always have around you and all. He's saying, you've got way more to look forward to than just your little binky. But a lot of us, even when we're older, we want to hold on to that binky. We want to hold on to what we have. So here's the point of the story. Our hope of heaven trumps the hype of today. See, I used that word again. Our hope of heaven trumps the hype of today. I don't care which side you're on on a political issue. Your hope and promise of heaven has to trump your position and your passion. We need to be about winning people, not winning arguments. How do our sports, how do our hobbies, how do we do our passions, how do we use those things in order to reach people? How do we do it to reach people? How you do that, our hope and, and promise has to trump those things. Whatever the, the, the passion button is in your life that, that just sends you on your way about things. We can't let those things get in the way of the image that we're reflecting because he died for people and they are eternal. And if you don't get this, let me just say this all charity and love. If you don't understand this, God's going to help you understand it. He's going to come into your life and he's going to flip your tables and your chairs. He says, you be about people and about loving people. And we're going to look at that some next week. He, he, he asked the question, how do these things get set up in the way of that? Well, I have a verse for it. Yeah, we always have a verse for it. You see, heaven will be far greater than whatever your greatest is now. Heaven will be far greater than whatever your greatest is now. Whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're, I, I promise you, it's childish. It's temporary in con comparison with eternity. There are only two things, and you want to write this down in your notes too. Don't put your pens away. There's only two things that you will touch in this life that are eternal. People and the Word of God. People and the Word of God. Those are the only two things that are eternal. If there's something worth fighting for, if there's a hill worth dying on, choose the one that he died on because of the promises of God. It came at a high price. And like we saw last week in the story of the vineyard, it's a God that comes back. And yes, he demands obedience because he knows that's the best life for us now. And at the end of this week, he will show us clearly how important people are to him. What a story. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. MIN.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!